following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Ruben mentioned that uh, my wife and I spent some time in Egypt. That's actually where we met. And it's funny when you live overseas that there are things that you start to miss desperately. Things that are really, really important to your core identity. And the first one of those is, of course, your family. That you miss them right away. And I want to show you some pictures of what I missed quickly thereafter. The first one right here is Abuelos. And so they have a me, Abuelos Manjar. It is wonderful. The next thing after that is a restaurant called Perini's. And so they have a beautiful burger and a nice prime rib on a mesquite fire. Awesome. The next one comes in. And Texas Roadhouse, that's where you get your ribs and anything fried, which everything in my idea should be fried. Uh, and then the next one comes here from Betty Rose's. That's just barbecue right there. We've got uh, a beautiful um, bananas dessert, and it's great. And then finally here, we've got uh, Rosa's Cafe, so Tex-Mex. So if I could just kind of boil down the core of my identity, it's food <laughs> and family. <laughs> And nothing comes together more um, powerfully uh, or exponentially, really, of food and family than in Thanksgiving in the States. And that was one of the most difficult times to be away, particularly in Egypt, because we could not find any of the ingredients of the traditional Thanksgiving meal. And so, by God's grace, Andrea and I were invited by one of the colonels of the American uh, Air Force into their house for Thanksgiving. And what was unique about them is they had commissary privileges. So if you know what a commissary is, is the U.S. government will fly groceries from the states into this little kind of store in the middle of Egypt that you walk into and you're transported into a different place. That's my little piece of heaven. Regent can be yours. Mine is the supermarket of all sorts of goods. And uh, you could just get whatever you want. And so we were invited over their place to have an American Thanksgiving meal. And what was fun about it is that they had invited a whole plethora of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. There were those from the American military from all different ranks together. There were those outside of the country, outside of the states who had ever participated in a Thanksgiving meal. There's one from Scotland. There were some from Egypt, some from Latin America, some from Holland. And what I loved about them is that they were just amazed how Americans can make vegetables taste so sweet. <laughs> to give you an example, we have the sweet potato casserole. Yes, that is sweet potatoes with marshmallows, brown sugar, butter, and a crumble <laughs> topping. That's a side dish. That isn't a dessert. The dessert is when you take pumpkin and infuse it with sugar and you get your pumpkin pie. But my task to bring was my grandfather's award-winning pecan pie. And so when I brought it out, there were a few people in the room who said, what is a pecan? And I said, oh, a, a pecan. And they go, no, we've, we've never heard of that. And I gasp, because I'm pretty sure that my grandfather would have thought that that was heresy somehow. Because I think in his book in Genesis is that he thought if the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had fruit on it, then the tree of life had to have pecans on it. And so if Adam and Eve would just have stuck with the pecans, we wouldn't be in the state of sin that we are now. And so this pecan pie was a bit of redemption for those who had them. My favorite part, though, uh, of this entire thing was just watching how all these different people gathered together 
who were from different professions, different economic levels, different ways of seeing the world, different cultures. And, and the conditions were created for friendship to blossom. And so these, uh, this meal in particular, because the host, man, they were just incredibly generous, where they had for every single person a tailored gift that they gave to them. They were abundantly hospitable, where there was food to feed armies. They were intentionally servant-hearted, where they were always looking out for your well-being. And what it did, again, is it created the conditions for laughter to occur, for the sharing of stories, and for friendship to be built. Where these disconnected units of people came together and friendship was forged. This morning what I want to do is talk about the Lord's table or communion. And I think that is the heart of what the Lord's table is. And so my sermon really has one point, and it's that the Lord's table is the participation in and the proclamation of Christ's unifying work. And to, to show this what I do, I want to just walk through the, the main passage that expounds this Lord's Supper in Corinthians 11. And first we're going to start, as Paul does, looking at the problem with Corinth and how they had strayed from proclaiming and from participating in the unifying power of Christ. Then we're going to look at the message of the Lord's table, where Christ shows us how he's proclaiming and inviting us to participate in his unifying power. And then we're going to see, briefly at the end, how we can practice the Lord's table in a way that proclaims and participates in his unifying power. You with me? You got the map where we're going? Then if you have your Bibles, go ahead and crank them open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we will start in verse 17. It says this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings, or literally for your coming togethers, do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And so, where he begins, and just if I can start at the beginning, in Corinthians, Paul has really kind of one message that he's hammering over and over throughout the book, and it comes in the first chapter in verse 10, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And then he goes through all these different reasons um, and different issues that Corinthians have that they're not united. And this one is the Lord's table. And so he says, listen, some of you have written to me, basically. I've heard that there are divisions among you. And he's smart, and he goes, now, to some extent, I believe it, because there's always a bias whenever you get an opinion, right, Reuben? Um, if someone comes, but knowing what I do about you, I, I'm going to go after it. And here's the problem. You come together. A word that he uses five times in this, this passage. It's the main thrust of this passage. You come together, but you're divided. And this word divided literally means torn apart. So you're in the same location, but you're acting as though you're torn apart. Unified in location, but unequal in relation. And I don't know if we have to uh, imagine too much, because I'm sure in your experiences in churches, not this one, of course, but other churches, where it's easy to gather together, but there can be all sorts of fractions. And it's just intense 
disagreement that goes on. Or with bigger church, I feel as though we can come together and we can be so detached from one another that we don't even get to experience what it means to truly come together. And so I think that that's what he is going after here, is that what we have to be is, is together. And he's going to expound on this in chapter 12, just to give you some wider context, the chapter out of this, in that beautiful passage where Paul talks about that the body of Christ is us, that we are all together his body. And just imagine with my body, if some of the different parts of it decided that they were going to detach from one another or have disagreements with one another, like my brain and my heart didn't get along, how well do you think that's going to go? Not very well at all. That's painfully difficult and tragic. And I think in the same way that he's saying that we as the body of Christ have to come together, that we all have our differences, but Christ unites us in this beautiful, complete whole. The church is us together. And what I love about that is every single one of you have been gifted in some way. And you have different experiences and different perspectives and again, different offerings. And Christ calls us together where we are all dependent on one another. We are dependent on each other's gifts and strengths for us to be faithful. For us to fulfill our call as Christ has called us to. And I think that's why he says at the end of this verse, in verse 19, that it is our coming together and being united in our differences instead of being divided or torn apart in our differences, that God's approval is shown, that God's approval is proclaimed. See, the problem again is that the, the church in Corinth wasn't participating in and they weren't proclaiming the unifying power of Christ. Now, let's dig a little deeper and go, what exactly was going on that Paul um, has this assessment upon them. And let's look in verse 20 as we continue. It says there, so then when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Now, what's going on here? In the time period that Paul's uh, writing in, in the Greco-Roman period, there was a number of meals that would have been celebrated in that culture. You have your cultic meals, those were attached to temples, your festival meals, which were attached to holidays, you had your public or your community meals, which the wealthy would provide for, and then you had private meals, and that's the word that Paul uses here. And a private meal is where you each brought something and you shared it together. So it'd be a shared plate meal that's common in, in churches. But you have to remember, they weren't meeting in church buildings in this time, right? They would gather in houses because it was small and they were a persecuted bunch. And usually the houses that were large enough to accommodate the group were those of the wealthy. And so those who have dug into the literature and the archaeology of this time, particularly the man named Gerd Thiessen, shows that what would happen is that usually in a wealthy house in that point, we have a picture up here, is that the wealthy would go in a private meal to this triclinium right there. And you can kind of see it with a little couch around there. And it was a bit more comfortable. The food would be a bit better, and the wine would be a lot better and a lot more plentiful. And then the non-landowners would be in the atrium in the pool section. So they would spread out around there and, and share a meal. 
And this was just a product of the stratified culture that they lived in, where the landowners had all the power and everyone else didn't. And so the landowners should have a certain privilege. And that's just unquestioned in that time. And so it was being imported into the church. And that's why I think the best explanation of this passage is what would happen when they would gather for church is the wealthy, who had a bit more discretionary time, would gather early, and they'd get started on the meal, and they'd get started on the wine. And then after a hard day's work, then the laborers would come in, and they would have a lot less that they would bring, and so they would begin to share their meager meal. And that's why Paul basically says that some of you go hungry, and the other you are drunk, in verse 21. And then after that, they would have the church service and share the Lord's Supper. Together, but really apart. And see, what I think has happened is that the values of the culture have influenced the practice of the Lord's Supper more than the values of the Savior. The cultural value of privilege has trumped the Christian value of unity. Now, my guess is that such blatant um, discrimination would be really hard for us to stomach. Like, just imagine if Reuben goes, you know, we need some more money in the church. We need to really boost tithes. And so what he did is he just took out this front row right here, all the chairs, and he brought in 10 lazy boy seats right there. And he said, the top 10 givers, you can sit in there and you can even fall asleep in my sermon. And of course, they would need refreshment, so I imagine that Andrew Lamont would come in with his great white hair and his suit, and he would distribute beverages uh, to all of those that they're comfortable in there. And my guess is that you would probably pull up to Reuben and go, man, you can't do that. I don't know what kind of training you got in the States, but this is kind of what we would have expected uh, of this. And, and you would say, no way. So I was trying to think, how does this relate to us today? And so I, I was trying to define what is privilege in this case, in the, the case of the Corinthians. And I think it is assigning myself a status that validates my separation from and elevation above someone who's different. Assigning myself a status that validates my separation from and elevation above someone who is different. Just think about any sort of relational conflicts that you've been in. What usually happens is someone does or says something that they shouldn't. And at least me, my mind goes, they are being completely inappropriate. They should know better than to treat me that way. I am now validating that I know better than they do. So I am elevating myself above them. And then my rationale is, is I've got to keep a distance from them or they will hurt me. Now I've validated I have separation from because I know how to treat people. They don't. Instead of going through the hard work of love, where I approach them and I seek to understand them, I listen, we go through forgiveness and the process of reconciliation fueled and empowered by the Spirit of God. That is participating in the unifying power of Christ. I think it can happen on a broader level, too, culturally. And just to give you an example, when I was in Cairo, we had two different demographics. And so our church was about 1,800 uh, English speakers from 50 nations, 50 denominations, so quite large. But there were two major contingencies. You had the Western contingency, and then you had the African contingency. 
And so the Westerners were mostly expats who were paid well to be there with foreign companies to work there. And the African contingency was primarily refugees from Sudan, fleeing warfare, or other countries where they were coming to Egypt to get paid pathetic wages because it was better than their home country. And so when I was working primarily with the youth, the Western kids had more money to do certain activities and certain things that they liked than the African kids. But the African kids wanted to worship a lot more expressive, a lot more energy than the Western kids. And then there was just a difference of personal hygiene between both groups that sometimes created tension. What do you do? And so I imported the, the values of the culture in that point, the business culture, looking at efficiency and effectiveness. And so we decided that our target market was the, the Western crew, because that's who I understood. I could articulate the gospel in their terms. I knew what was going on, and then raised up some leadership to kind of take the African contingency so they could articulate the gospel in terms, and, and so they could go on, and we would support them whatever they needed, primarily financially. And so what I was doing was saying, I think it'd be better if we met at two different tables. And you know what? It was probably more effective and efficient. There were probably kids that understood the gospel in a way that they could, and probably more kids that came into the group because of that. But you know what happened? Is I reinforced the cousins of privilege. Comfort and convenience. And I robbed them, I think, of an opportunity to participate in the gospel, to really understand the unifying power of Christ, to allow the spirit to cultivate a maturity within them that they give up comfort and convenience for the much greater and much richer reality of brotherhood and sisterhood with those who are different. I chose articulating the gospel over providing the opportunity to experience the gospel. Privilege trumped unity. And contrast this to what Paul says is going on in the Lord's Supper. If you move down to verse 23, he says, this is the message. This is what the Lord's Supper is about. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in contrast to this divided table built on cultural of privilege and status, Paul reminds us of the heart of the Lord's Supper. And it's to remember. Remember. Remember this reenactment of the Last Supper. And what happens at the Last Supper is you have God in flesh coming to his disciples. You have the only person that has ever walked the face of the earth who had legitimate privilege who had legitimate grounds to elevate himself above and to separate himself from. And instead, what he says is, I am giving you everything of me. My body and my blood will be broken and poured out for your good. Instead of elevation above and separation from, I'm going to come under you as a servant, and I'm going to lift you up to the Father. 
And in doing so, I'm going to gather you in to the family of God. Remember who we celebrate at the table. But I think it goes deeper, and there's a bit more layers reaffirming this message. And this came about when I was looking at the early church fathers. I wanted to get as close to the time of Christ in these writings and see, how did they practice the Lord's Supper? And so you have um, Ignatius, you've got Justin the Martyr, and you have this church document called the Didache, some of the earliest church documents. And what was interesting is that they all said what we're doing at the Lord's Supper is we are participating in a peace offering. And you can look in Leviticus 7 where it explains the peace offering. And what you did is that you brought the animal and the animal was sacrificed and the blood was spread across the altar to signify the forgiveness of one's sins, the faults, the failures that had happened and that you were now brought back into relationship with God. You also brought bread to signify now that the fellowship with God and the provisions of God to be faithful to his covenant is now made ready. And the unique thing about the peace offering, which is why they point to it, it was the only offering that the one offering got to take a piece of it. So some would be given to the priest, some would be burned, and the rest of this meat and bread would be taken, and it would be shared at a table, basically for a family and friend party. Because you didn't get meat a lot in that time, and so this was a way that you got to celebrate. Because the message was, our fellowship with God is the foundation and the means of our fellowship with one another. We share the covenant of God through the sacrifice. And so you could see why these church fathers should say, that is Christ. His body and blood is the one that forgives us for our failures, forgives us for the way that we've messed up, for relationships that we've crushed, for our selfishness and our pettiness and our rebellion against God. And he draws us in and he says, I forgive you. My love never fails. It covers you and I'm not running out from you. Come in. But he gathers us all to the table and says, there is a unity that comes from that. The people of God are called together around my table and it is a buffet with everything you need to be faithful to what he's called you to. There's one more thing to that. Again, that's kind of the participation. It was interesting to me that the verse that they all quoted in talking about the Lord's Supper was Malachi 1.11. And this is what it says. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And so this pure offering, again, they thought is the peace offering. And they says, listen, when Christ's unifying power comes into our lives, and when it unifies us together in a way that we are complete, unified in our diversity, then it broadcasts this incredible message. It proclaims power to the world where God's greatness goes out, where God's greatness is proclaimed. And I'm sure that you've experienced that, right? I mean, if you've ever been to a group of people that they just get along and they love each other and there's just this density of the, the relationship that's there and you just go, I want to be friends with them. How do I get into their social network? You know, how can I be a part of them? And I think that's exactly what Christ prayed after the Lord's Supper in John when he said in verse 17, may my followers be brought to compute complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as I have loved 
Jesus loved me. Our unity is the greatest testimony of Christ's power. We got to experience a glimpse of this when we were in Vancouver at First Baptist. And what I loved is this church had a heart for the, the people on the streets. The middle of downtown, lots of people on the street. And so they would invite people in. Once a week, they would sleep in the church grounds, and they would, be, they would populate the church um, service. And, and so people on the street are unpredictable. They're usually coming from drug addiction, there's prostitution or mental illness there, and so you just never knew. And there was one particular guy that always sat in the back, and when the preacher got going, he would get going too. And so he wanted to verbally respond, and so he'd get that, amen, amen. And, uh, but he, he, he knew that uh, women's liberation had occurred and that women needed to be represented in this. So he would, I kid you not, say, a woman, a woman, a man, <laughs> from the back. And you just kind of go, oh, I love that guy. <laughs> there were times that he would say things that weren't as appropriate, <laughs> and you would get kind of awkward, and those times were quite frequent. But everyone just accepted that, because he was a part of the community God had called together. And you know what was amazing to me is that more powerfully than I think than the, the, the pastor could ever preach was the message of the inclusion of those guys and girls because it says everyone is welcome. Everyone has a part to play. God's unifying power is at work. Anyone from the city, come on. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the message, I think, of the Lord's Supper. Now, just to close quickly, is then how do we practice it? How do we take this in a way that reflects this message? And uh, we'll just close with these, these verses in, in verse 27. It says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Skipping down to 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Now, my guess is, if your experience was like mine growing up, that these verses were why you did not like the Lord's Supper as much. Because I was always kind of taught that the Lord's Supper was supposed to be really dreary, almost like a funeral. And you had to make yourself feel really bad that you crucified Christ. And you had to think about all the sins that you had uh, before you could approach. And you had to get right. That was discerning the body. I had to say, is there anything wrong with me? I got to get it out, confess before I could take communion. And you see what that does? It's another form of privilege, right? For those who have it right, they can take privilege. They can take communion. Those who don't, lesser status, they can't. As if we could ever get it right. As if we could ever be at the place acceptable for Christ apart from Christ. And so I love this because, again, I got scared because I thought that uh, it was kind of like Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Have you all seen that? When, he, you know, he chooses the wrong cup and the guy goes, you have chosen poorly. <laughs> and then his eyes roll in and he just disintegrates. I thought as a kid, if I didn't have everything confessed, that was going to be me. And so I didn't take a lot of communion because <laughs> I liked the way that I was at that point. But if you can see in this context, what it's saying is discerning the body is looking to say, are we unified? Taking the, the, the body and bread in an unworthy manner is doing it amidst blatant disagreements, blatant, in a sense, diversity that's tearing apart instead of bringing together. And so there's two paths, he basically says, is you can continue in that uh, tearing apart 
and God's judgment will come. And I think God's judgment primarily throughout the scripture is he leaves us and our sin to have its consequences without stepping in. And so in those verses that we didn't read, he says, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, some of you are dead. It's God's judgment. And what I think he said is that you haven't cared for each other well. And so some of you are sick and some of you are weak and some of you have actually passed away because no one stepped in to be the body. Or you can discern the body. And you can say, where are there relationships in my life that aren't right? Where are there disagreements in the church that are tearing us apart? And how can we bring healing? How can we allow Christ to draw us back in? And again, I don't think that's the condition of the Lord's Supper. I think it's just an awareness that we come to the table knowing that. Because where is the solution to those problems? Where are we going to find healing for our many relational difficulties? Sitting at the same table. Coming over and over again, symbolically throughout the week together, where we hear Christ speak forgiveness over us, where we hear Christ liberate us with his spirit, where we get the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all really great things for relationships to work well. And he says, it's all yours. And so the question I want to just leave you to ponder with is if a meal hosted by some people who could get some goods from the states in the middle of the desert in Egypt can bring this diverse group together, what could happen in this diverse city of Auckland, where the main problem is all these different groups of people not being able to get together, what happens when we pull up to the table where imported from the heavenly realms is every spiritual blessing available for us at a table hosted by the Savior of the world? This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.